and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. This week, the Ringer is launching a new podcast feed called Boom Bust, the new hub for narrative podcasts documenting the rise and fall of companies, celebrities, and trends. Season one, hosted by our own Alyssa Bereznak, takes you through this spectacular journey of HQ trivia, the once $100 million industry-altering company turned disaster. Alyssa interviewed dozens of former employees, investors, journalists, and fans, bringing you the behind-the-scenes story of how HQ crumbled from within. Subscribe to Boom Bust HQ Trivia and check out the first two episodes out now on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer here. This is a press box. On today's agenda, the segment everybody's been waiting for, Brian and David talk about the Call Her Daddy podcast drama. Yep, it's come to this. What does the latest barstool contratemps owe to Howard Stern? We will discuss. We'll also answer your listener mail, including the question, which NBA insider will be granted access Inside the NBA bubble, plus David guesses a strain pun headline and the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But David, let's begin with a topic that I'm hoping we can kind of explain to each other, Obamagate, (laughs) or the quote-unquote Obamagate quote-unquote scandal. You can't have enough air quotes when talking about Obamagate. The whole thing unfolded thusly. Last Monday... Donald Trump quote tweeted an article from the far right website, The Federalist, which was headlined, Why did Obama tell the FBI to hide its activities from Trump? Trump himself offered an answer because it was Obamagate and he and Sleepy Joe led the charge, the most corrupt administration in U.S. history. What is Obamagate exactly? Well, here's what Trump said at his press conference last Monday. When asked by the Washington Post's Philip Rucker. Mr. President, in one of your Mother's Day tweets, you appear to accuse President Obama of the biggest political crime in American history. I'm sorry, can we just stop it right there, Erica? <laughs> David, is there any better sign of our times than when a reporter begins a question in one of your Mother's Day tweets? <laughs> Oh my gosh, he's using the, you know, he's a trained journalist just trying to do that beautiful, the time-honored tradition of kind of setting, painting the background there, setting the stage. Let's see what comes after that. It's it's a real newspaper trick too, right? Because it's totally deadpan. In a Mother's Day Twitter rampage, mm-hmm. comma, President Donald J. Trump. All right, let us continue with Philip Rucker. Biggest political crime in American history by oh. far, those were your words. What crime exactly are you accusing President Obama of committing, and do you believe the Justice Department should prosecute him? Uh, Obamagate. It's been going on for a long time. It's been going on from before I even got elected, and it's a disgrace that it happened. And if you look at what's gone on, and if you look at now all of this information that's being released, and from what I understand, that's only the beginning. Uh, Some terrible things happened, and it should never be allowed to happen in our country again. And you'll be seeing what's going on over the next, over the coming weeks. But I, and I wish you'd write honestly about it. But unfortunately, you choose not to do so. Yeah, John, please. Crime. What is the crime exactly that uh, you're accusing him of? You know what the crime is. The crime is very obvious to everybody. All you have to do is read the newspapers, except yours. Well, I feel like that's the end of the segment right there, right? We've, <laughs> <laughs> we've just had Obamagate explained to us in full. Oh, man. I mean... It's been a, an easy laugh line, I think, for, you know, liberal Twitter or just Twitter in general. And, and anyone watching that, I think, immediately sort of turned to whoever else was in the room with them and just, you know, with mouth agape, wondered if that's if they had just heard what they thought they heard. But, I mean, honestly, if someone asks you a question, we, 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 have, we both have children. If you ask your child a question and the answer is, you know what it is, you know what I'm talking about, and then they like turn their head and run away, you know they're making something up, right? I mean, every human being knows this. But that's exactly the point of Obamagate, right? At the same time, it's like, this is what we've been talking about about Donald Trump from the very beginning. And we'll get into trying to define Obamagate in just a second. But I think it's the most central tenet, the most central aspect of it is that it's meaningless. And Yes. Whether or not Trump, the people who, the Trump voters, Trump's audience, whatever, are aware 
or, or, or believe what he says in all of his nonsense or are in on the joke and like the idea that he's fighting back or doing whatever that is the real question right i mean that that is the great unknown but let, let's get back to the basics here and talk obamagate uh let's let's take it i hate to say this let's take it seriously for one second what do you think you got it because the next day in an attempt to add a little more definition the white house released an ad a video thing on its social media platforms with the caption obamagate Turns out it was just a mad libs of boogeyman and boogie women, including James Comey, Sally Yates, Susan Rice, that whole lineup we've seen trotted out by Trump time and time again. But the basic gist, David, if I understand this, is something that Trump's been peddling for a really long time, which is a bunch of Democrats and deep state people made up the Russia scandal Mm -hmm. in an attempt to undermine the Trump administration. They didn't necessarily know he was going to win the presidency. In fact, very few people thought he would win the presidency, but they preemptively made this up to undermine his future presidency. Right. That's the gist. Now, functionally, what is this? It's a strategy Steve Bannon famously dubbed flooding the zone with shit. (laughs) Sean Illing writes this at Vox. This is a new form of propaganda tailored to the digital age, and it works not by creating a consensus around any particular narrative, but by mudding the water so that consensus isn't possible. Yeah. Which is, I think, what you're saying a second ago about its undebunkability being key to its power in the Trump universe. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's a, there is an early, I think early on in this whole Obamagate cycle, such as it is, Jack Holmes wrote a piece for Esquire that when, when he's trying to break down what the actual crime at the heart of this is, and and he semi-seriously writes, he says that they wanted Flynn to lie about him. And then something about KT McFarlane, knock, knock FBI, and then unmasking. (laughs) And then he goes back to the, into the FBI lovers routine. The, The point is. I think what sets this moment, this accusation, whatever, this conspiracy theory apart from what has come before is, well, the, the, the one and only thing that sets us apart from what's come before is the term Obamagate, right? And that might be the most compelling part of the entire thing, right? I mean, that we've, the, the, and it's not, it's not that they've drawn all of these things together under one umbrella and composed some sort of narrative, be it conspiratorial or real, it's just by put, by presenting this this name Obamagate, there is the implication that we have brought everything into one narrative, right? There is the implication that it all fits together like some like the last page of a Dashiell Hammett novel, right? Where you're just like pulling things from the ether from from chapters one, eight, and nine, and oh my god, I didn't how did I not see that all along? That's not actually happened in reality. Yeah, it it sort of makes Trump into like the J.J. Abrams of the right where we got all these elements that everybody loves, right? These elements that have been playing on Fox News, but they need to be remixed under a a new banner, right? They need to be sold to you anew. So Mm -hmm. essentially, we're going to take the Hillary Clinton server thing, which is really what Obamagate is, just with slightly different villains and occasionally the same villains. Yeah. Put a new label on it, like you said, we're even going to overlap with the old things because he has suggested in at least uh, one round of this that Russia wanted Hillary Clinton to win the election in 2016 and not him. So we're just going to go mm-hmm. fully around the bend on that thing and repackage it. Just, just one more clip. And, and again, this may be at the risk of taking this all too seriously. Here is Trump riffing with Maria Bartiromo on Fox Business. Oh, my God. Yeah. About what Obamagate might be. It was the greatest political crime in the history of our country. If I were a Democrat instead of a Republican, uh, I think everybody would have been in jail a long time ago. And I'm talking with 50-year sentences. Uh, It is a disgrace what's happened. This is the greatest political uh, scam hoax in the history of our country well, it is the biggest and people should be going to jail seen. for this stuff and hopefully a lot of people are going to have to pay no other president should have to go through and i'll tell you general flynn and others are heroes heroes because what's happened to them they weren't after general flynn they wanted him to lie about me make up a story and with few exceptions 
Nobody did that. There were many people. I watched KT McFarlane the other day. I watched where she was knock, knock, FBI. You know, the FBI, okay? This was all Obama. This was all Biden. These people were corrupt. The whole thing was corrupt. And we caught them. We caught them. You and what I you saw you just now, I watched Biden yesterday. He could barely speak. He was on Good Morning America, right? And he said he didn't know anything about it. And now it just gets released right after he said that. It gets released that he was one of the unmaskers, meaning he knew everything about it. So he lied to your friend George Stephanopoulos. The fact of the matter, and in documents that either, I don't know if they're the ones he was referencing, but certainly documents that came out, that have come out either then or since, is that Joe Biden was not actually un, one of the unmaskers um, in, in, on any of the FBI documents that are, that are actually significant to what's going on here. Um, I'm not sure that that matters. I'm not sure that there, I mean, there's certainly not going to be, uh, you know, an addendum to any of Trump's charges. Uh, just the release of new documents, even if they're exculpatory for Joe Biden or Barack Obama or whoever else, I th- it will just be used exactly the same way as a, as, as further ambiguous proof that this has taken place. Right. I mean, you'll just, they just point and say, mm-hmm. look, new documents say, uh, whatever, but you know, uh, to be, to be given a, I mean, L- that Maria Bartiromo interview was <laughs> a back scratch session, right? I mean, there was like so there. That was the most comfortable interview that our president may ever get. The most like, I mean, there, there's that was the friendliest, the friendliest place he could possibly be. Do you hear her interject there? Yes, it is the biggest yeah, scandal. Exactly. That that's not exactly a great follow up. Uh, students of journalism. Yeah, for that to be the best answer that he could formulate. And uh, in such a friendly setting is is telling. I mean, the whole thing is telling. Every answer he's given is telling. But like, come on. I mean, that was the place for him to just lay out the inanity and all his glory. I think a really fascinating question here is why is Trump doing this? You know, yes. if he has lots of diversionary tactics available to him. I mean, on the one hand, if American if Americans think you've screwed up the government response to coronavirus saying, hey, look over there has potential merit as a strategy. But as a bunch of people have pointed out, labeling this with Obama's name is kind of weird because Biden and Hillary before him were semi-popular, semi-unpopular politicians. Obama, at least by the standards of our very hyper-partisan era, still polls, his approval ratings are still in the mid-50s to low 60s. So you've sort of replaced Joe Biden, who seems like an eminently criticizable politician with somebody who's more popular than Joe Biden. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, that's a good question. I don't think that it's, there, you know, there's the answer is necessarily deep. I, I think that, frankly, Trump probably can't separate his own aversion, distaste, hatred, pick your word uh, for former President Obama from that of the rest of the world, right? I mean, he, he probably assumes that everybody hates him as much as he does, despite what the polls say, because we all know that he doesn't believe in the polls. Um, and I think probably if you want to get scientific or give it the benefit of the doubt, um, I think, you know, the real move here is to try to try to animate the base. And I think his base probably does hate Obama as much as he does, right? So, I mean, just if you, if you can, if this is a, a useful tool in um, getting... Trump, pro-Trump, anti-Obama voters to the polls in November, then uh, then it could be a success. Yeah. I mean, there's a, the other theory would be that we had that Obama had that call with former staffers where he called the he's been very reluctant to say anything of President Obama, former President Obama about anything since he left mm-hmm. office. He called it on this call to the White House response to coronavirus, a quote, an absolute chaotic disaster. As NBC notes, two days later. On May 8th, Trump tweeted Obamagate and devised a conspiracy theory. Yeah. So maybe the answer is just the most obvious one. Like, I was mad at Obama. Yeah. And so I chose to sort of go off. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you know, I mean, the coronavirus response, I mean, this is slightly is a little bit of a sidebar. Um, and all the big pieces from the Times, the Post or the Wall Street Journal or wherever about the Trump administration's failure on the coronavirus front, there's always, you know, there's a little bit of a lack of a coherent central narrative. Not, uh, I don't mean in the same way that Obamagate doesn't have a central narrative because that one's made up and this one's real. But the, but you do kind of get the impression reading, you know, a New York Times piece about 
Jared's, you know, wacky group of um, volunteers or whatever that like there is a certain we actually this reminds me of what we talk about all the time. There's a certain level of just like straightforwardness that all these papers have to uh, skirt. Right. Like mm -hmm. the New York Times is not just going to say this was a bunch of fucking crazy bullshit. You know, <laughs> like they can't like the way that any of us would talk about a normal thing is not. And so not in but, so many words. Yeah. But we're left sort of wondering to what degree this bullshit is crazy. It's clear that if anyone is reading this and can and, and immediately under like intuits immediately understands the depths of just the wrongheadedness, it is a former president like Barack Obama, right? And so, of course, when he actually has to speak about this amongst friends or or even, you know, in semi-public settings, because this is a huge, huge international tragedy, he's going to say, he's going to be, that, that this would be what would animate him, right? And then from what everything we know about the current president, the one thing that's going to animate him is hearing that somebody talked bad about him. The other question, and it sort of goes to what you just said about the media, is the should we cover this question? Right. And I'm happy to include the two of us doing this segment in it um, because there's a, there's this idea that when Trump comes up with something that is so obviously not real, mm -hmm. that just by mentioning it, even if you're debunking it, even if you're treating it with the kind of skepticism you and I are trying to do right now, that you are just unintentionally doing Trump's bidding by putting the word Obamagate, even with air quotes, out into the universe. So, yeah. I mean, my take on all this, and this has come up again and again in the Trump during the Trump years, my take on all this has been, it is a tough question, right? Because there is a certain sense that as soon as you mention this, you're just making this a little more real, even if you're saying it's not real. But the flip side of it is, if you don't say anything, you leave it to bandana wearing Glenn Beck at his chalkboard or Judge Janine to just talk about it all the time. And they are on Fox News, by the way, leaning into Obamagate. Media Matters says that they are now talking about it to the exclusion of coronavirus. Coronavirus now stories, they said Media Matters says account for only 56% of the output from the network, down from 95% the month before of stories on Fox News. So not only has Trump changed the subject, they've changed the subject. And if you don't say anything about it, it just sits out there and cycles around. That's true. I think of all of the times that this do we cover it conversation has come up, and maybe it's because of the lunacy of this one, of this the Obamagate issue. I feel like we're closer now to an answer to the question than we have been in some of the previous ones. I, and I think that the answer is, and but this has been another conversation that's been going on since the beginning of Trump's campaign four plus years ago, which is like what words are we are, are major media outlets allowed to use to call something untrue, right? I mean, and mm -hmm. and, and and I think that there's, I think that whatever your editorial board describes, uh, it is fair in this case to just refer to something as Trump's Obamagate lunacy or, you know, whatever word you whatever word you want to put after that. I also think that, I mean, there are a lot of good Obamagate explainers that are not from right wing media sources that are out there. Right? I mean, if you type Obamagate into Google, um, you will probably at least at this point come across something that is more helpful uh, than not. Um, but that said, this is. You know, this is a media podcast. This is what new in new media. This is what the hyperlink was born for. You know, like to to be able to use the word Obamagate in passing in a piece and link it to a helpful ex explanation of what it is, which is to say, there's no there there. Um, that might be the best way to handle it. I don't know. I mean, you do have to identify it as some as being untrue in the actual text. You can't rely on the hyperlink to explain everything because that's the opposite of what would be useful. But you, but to give it words on the page is almost as much of the problem as to be wishy-washy about its veracity. Yeah, well, I love all the solutions we have. Wait, the big one is air quotes. Because every every <laughs> explainer I looked at looked up, by the way, Tim Miller's and the Bulwark is really good. Susan Glasser uh, on the New Yorker's website, Vox has several of them. It was always Obamagate <laughs> with quotes in the headline. Right. As if that was kind of enough to like, okay, you know, it's not real, folks, right? <laughs> it's Obamagate. It's not Obamagate. Yeah. It's Obamagate. Look, I'm annoying way. If only there were a punctuation that you could type in for sad trombone that might, or just like sl <laughs> slide whistle or something. Like, I don't, I don't even know exactly what this right sound would be. But um, 
Yeah, I mean, obviously you're trying to evoke something there that's not, I mean, the yeah, the air quotes or the quotes in that case, or actual quotes, do serve a purpose. But um, the problem here is that even though the, 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 you know, the accusations are fake, Obamagate is not fake, right? It is a real, it, it, the, the substance doesn't exist. It's a real sub- hoax. It is a real hoax, right? And so the quotes are in some ways inaccurate, right? I mean, the, the quotes almost don't do justice to the depths of the hoax, to, to the, the, the degree to which the hoax is going to spread, you know? And um, so we have to take it seriously somehow, even as we're, you know, we laugh it off. David, let's move to something that never needs ironic distancing. The, oh, segue. The overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious. That all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Please send your nominees to at the press box pod. David, a couple more gags from the last dance because we haven't squeezed every drop of juice from that orange yet. Remember that scene in the 10th episode where Michael Jordan and the Bulls have won their final title in 1998. You know exactly where this is going. I do. I see you (laughs) you nodding. And Leonardo DiCaprio and friends congratulated him in the locker room. It was an overworked Twitter joke to post that picture of Rick Dalton from once upon a time in Hollywood pointing at the TV. (laughs) Thanks to Hannah, Andrew Burkstaller and Ken Barrett. David, this one's a little closer to home. Director Jason Hare ended the 10 part documentary with the Pearl Jam song present tense. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write the end of the last dance, but first Pearl Jam. Thanks to (laughs) Andrew Stetka. I saw that a couple of times. And finally, David, Russia has a coronavirus information chief. Now, given the horrors of this pandemic, you might expect such a person to have a certain bedside manner, a certain grace. Here's what Russia's coronavirus information chief actually said this week. Those meant to die will die. Everyone (laughs) dies. Oh, man. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, congrats to Ivan Drago on his continued rise through the ranks of Russian <laughs> government. Thanks to Eric Kareen. If you found a government official with less empathy than Trump, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. David, let's talk about the Call Her Daddy podcast affair. But first, this message from a new podcast, Wind of Change with Patrick Radden Keefe. Hi, I'm Patrick Radden Keefe, a reporter at The New Yorker magazine. On my new podcast, Wind of Change, I investigate a rumor I haven't been able to shake since I first heard it years ago. It came from someone inside the CIA, and the story was that the agency had written one of the best-selling rock songs of all time, a song that changed the world. So that was the tip that started me on this story, and it only got crazier from there. Listen to Wind of Change, a new original series from Pineapple Street Studios, Crooked Media, and Spotify. All right, in the notebook dump, Kyle Coster, who works over there at the Big Lead, tweeted this, wondering if the press box gang could describe the level of passion and vigor with which they've researched the call her daddy situation. Ha ha, real funny. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> Here it is. Uh, I'm not sure we're going to be able to top the cut headline, which was, what is call her daddy and why is it fighting? <laughs> but here we go. Call her daddy was your typical overnight podcast sensation, which I mm-hmm. feel is a is just genre now, right? Sophia Franklin and a- Alexandra Cooper, both in their 20s, met at South by Southwest. Their origin story is that they started talking to each other about sex in a bar in Austin. People liked how frank their conversation was. And as Cooper later said, people came up to us and said, you need a show because I would listen to this every day. <laughs> now that sounds awfully pat. This is like the, t- the the day that John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora <laughs> met in the bar and started jamming. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, okay. Franklin and Cooper start their pod in 2018. The Barstool Empire gobbles it up within weeks and gives it a turbo boost. According to the New York Times' Taylor Lorenz, Caller Daddy jumped from 12,000 downloads to 2 million downloads in just two months. It's mm-hmm. now a top 20 podcast. And I don't know if you had this experience when you were talking to somebody about Barstool, but I feel I did where people would sort of lower their voice and go, you know, who's an even bigger star in the Barstool universe than PFT and Big Cat? It, it's the Call Her Daddy host. They're, they're mm-hmm. the true power. I feel, I feel like I had that conversation three or four times. 
Alexander Cooper described the pod's appeal thusly, quote, uncensored, real female locker room talk, which quite frankly is just as nasty as guy locker room talk. And we had no problem exploiting our experiences as well as ourselves for our listeners entertainment. Now, all that said on April 8th, Franklin and Cooper vanished. They just stopped making pods, David. Mm-hmm. And Barstool leader Dave Portnoy offered a typically statesmanlike response. I actually sent Alex a text after we had that conference call with the lawyer the first time that in my 17 years of doing this, I had never dealt with anybody as unprofessional and disloyal and greedy as those two. I'm paraphrasing. That was essentially it. I didn't talk to the call her daddy girls who prior to that, I thought I had a good relationship with, I don't know, for four or five months. And as everybody knows, they just stopped coming into the office. Yeah, I mean, Dave Portnoy hijacking the Twitter feed is a, uh, in some ways, a totally understandable, reasonable thing to do. There are a lot of people directing questions at him, uh, but is also just a perfect Dave Portnoy and Barstool way to handle the whole situation, right? I mean, they sort of break down everything, including conference calls with lawyers and text messages that you probably shouldn't have sent if you were just talking, you know, within a, with lawyers and, and, uh, the, the professionalism and unprofessionalism. I mean, obviously we're just airing dirty laundry here, but it, it, there's also a, a degree of, of, uh, you know, ass covering, um, a couple of points of order really quickly. One, they did vanish on April 8th, but I believe that the, to, uh, this is only from scanning like Barstool Reddit pages and stuff. I believe that like the, the questions about what was going on, with this podcast predated that a good bit that there were, they were sneaking, uh, you know, unexplained, but telling names of, of podcast episodes through, they were, you know, just sort of avoiding conversations about certain subjects. Um, so th- it's been a, a long simmering sort of situation. Um, the whole issue of like, well, whether it was demeaning, I mean, the, the podcast kind of being demeaning to both sexes and also, I guess that versus the, the notion of empowerment. Um, there's certainly a degree to which the association with Barstool didn't help the, the the accusations of it being demeaning, right? I mean, you can say whatever you want to about Barstool, but to take a company that's by and large, like, you know, held, or created by men has a very, like, bro kind of point of view, and to have this as this sort of bangle, um, you know, those those two, that, that certainly exploded the audience, and it helped their uh, fame and fortune and everything else, but... Um, you know, it's there was a certain tension kind of inherent in that whole thing. And that's part of what made it work, but that's also part of what made it difficult in the end. Now, going back to the to the details of the split, <clears throat> the fame and fortune that I just mentioned are sort of what's at stake here, right? Because you have this podcast that's making, I mean, that's just doing incredibly well. I mean, it's just reaching the top of the podcast charts. Like you said, millions of downloads, um, incredibly huge social media presences. I mean, for the hosts, as I understand it, uh, you know, Somebody pointed out that like they could probably make at some point based on their original contract, they could probably make more money with one like Instagram post where they endorse a product than they could in their like annual salary, right? To the level mm-hmm. at the level that they had reached. And we kind of we find ourselves and it's you know, it's as kind of salacious as the podcast itself is, it lends itself to the salacious reading of the story. And it's certainly with Barstool involved and the content of the podcast, the the hosts it makes it seem like it's a perfect page six story, which indeed it was a page six story, right? Mm-hmm. But it kind of gets it kind of it gets at a story that's actually not that unusual in this day and age, right? I mean, it's this is a it it is a very it's a very pat sort of modern media story where a media company can create, uh, basically create a media figure or figures can make a podcast can take a podcast from anonymity to the top of the charts, and then both because of the way that business works and because of the way that no one knows how to monetize podcasts exactly right and everything else, they can, you, can, you can feel like you've outgrown your original agreement or contract in like minutes, you know? I mean, it's just like, it takes like a second for you to feel like you're being undervalued. This used to take years, right? This used to take three years of a football contract to feel like you were undervalued enough to sit out, right? <laughs> and, and now it's like, and, and that's to say nothing of like people who are just doing regular jobs that feel like they're undervalued, but they don't even know how to bring it up. Now, not only is it clear within seconds that you're being underpaid or undervalued or whatever else, or clear to you, 
but you have a recourse, right? And, and you're not just sitting in your, in your cubicle, shrugging your shoulders and complaining to your wife or husband when you get home. All you have to do is like go online. You see a million people telling you how great you are and how you deserve something better, you know, and you can just go on Twitter and just be like, man, wouldn't it be fun to do a podcast somewhere else? And there's nothing that's not illegal. And then suddenly you'd have like, you know, offers pouring in. I completely agree. My sort of companion theory to that is that almost everything in modern podcasting media world is traceable to Howard Stern in some way oh, or another. Okay. Okay. So let, let's follow this for a second. The, um, the whole idea of what you just said is a sped up version of what Howard Stern did for years on the show. Mm -hmm. I'm under contract to these people. I hate it here. Uh, I don't like it. Uh, I feel confined. They're not letting me do what I want to do. I'm underpaid given how much money I've brought to this company. Let me out. Right in mm -hmm. here. It happens in this world more on social media. Howard just said it on the show, <laughs> by the way, it, just, it was actually just a constant sort of topic on the show. The other part of this that's very stern like is evidence that listeners were turning on the host of the show because they found out how much money they were making or how much money they could make because caller daddy like Stern and a lot of things before it is based on this idea that these people are just like me, right? They're a funnier, they're kind of like what I mm -hmm. wish I could, as funny as I wish I could be, as frank as I wish I could be. I saw BuzzFeed quoted Brittany Danielle. 28 year old fan of the show saying daddy gang is feeling really betrayed right now. <laughs> Howard Stern's own daddy gang felt very betrayed when he was making bazillions of dollars and seemed to become a different person, right? Than the Howard mm -hmm. they grew up with. And then the final part of this is the barstool part about the dirty laundry that you just mentioned, which is a total tactic from the Howard Stern thing, right? Any backstage contra temps we are going to have on mic because it's all content. Mm -hmm. And something that seems genuinely like terrible and awful, all that redounds to us in a good way. And that to me is the depressing part about this. This makes me queasier to talk about than Obamagate because we are giving, we are giving Dave Portnoy a W right here just by talking about this because he loves this. Yeah. Right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a, you know, there's the old wrestling adage, pro wrestling adage that we all know that like the best characters, the Stone Cold Steve Austin's, whatever, the, or the people's real personalities with the volume turned up to 11, right? Mm -hmm. And that's sort of like the ethos, one of probably every successful podcast that everybody's just sort of turning the volume up on themselves a little bit to, you know, become just like you said, so that the viewers or the listeners will say, that's just like me. If I could only, if only I fill in the blank, you know, that's the volume being turned up, but that's also the ethos of barstool sports by and large. Right. Yes. I mean that, that Portnoy will, or, you know, and everybody else just sort of amp up the, the, the silliness or the inanity or whatever else, just turn the volume up on these backstage contradicts and to go to, and certainly that's what Howard Stern did uh, for a lot of these issues. But the other interesting thing that I, I think that's exactly right. What you said about Howard Stern, but one interesting tidbit of that is the sort of, is that he would, he started these fights on the air before they were actual problems to the point that like when he actually left to go to satellite or whatever, when he would actually, you know, get into these contract disputes, you were a little bit surprised to find out that the, that the issues were real, right? Yeah, totally. It's like this is this wasn't a bit, you know? Yeah, and but you start the bit so early that the bit sort of the the, the prophecy is self-fulfilling, right? I mean, you you sort of you start and that's an aspect of all media, like you said, for so long. If you're like if you're making if if since Howard Stern started it, if you, you start these fights on air, the fight the, the fights sort of become legitimate. But it's also sort of an, an element of social media, right? That if like you let the little voice inside your head out to the world, then you have to actually, then you actually have to recognize it as real, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, what, what, norm, what normally would have been something that you would just hopefully sleep off is now like the, de like the devil on your shoulder screaming in your ear. And that, you know, it makes everything hard. But you're right. We're giving this, we're giving this oxygen because it is, I think, I mean, I think that, people are going to point to it right in the future. There's always going to be a new number one podcast or like top 10 podcast where the people feel like they're not being properly compensated. And I think that people are incredibly interested right now in the podcast economy. Right. And they're very interested in, uh, you know, they're always going to be interested in, in workers rights and everything else, especially in terms of new media. And, um, 
you know, it's a it's 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 a pretty a pretty interesting story. Yeah, and it's one of the roads to overnight stardom, right? I mean, and maybe you know, other than like you know, influencer, you know, it's a direct path, right? And yeah. so you're right. I mean, like that. This just feels like such a template. My podcast has gotten so big that my employer and my employer doesn't treat me with the respect I deserve. It feels like we could just cut paste that for like nine billion things. Should we talk? I mean, obviously, there's going to be more to the story. Did we have we talked about the HBO component of this yet? <laughs> Yeah, so <laughs> according to Taylor Lorenz, Portnoy guaranteed both hosts five hundred thousand dollars a year to come back plus bonuses. Mm-hmm. Cooper was in, by the way, with, and this is and also reduced their the length of their contract by six months and thought that they could and and made a deal. This is the really hugely important that would help them get in the IP for the show after the contract was up. Which really, if you do the math. That's, there's not much more of the show left if you take the amount of time it's existed and then subtract six months from what was not supposed to be a three-year contract. But anyway, half a million dollars a year with bonuses that could put it over a million. And uh, and the hosts, well, go on. You tell the rest. Well, Cooper in on that deal. Franklin allegedly out. And Portnoy said this was because Franklin was dating an HBO executive named Peter Nelson, who was known on the show as Suit Man. Um, that happened. Here is also a little audio of Sophia. That would be Franklin, Sophia Franklin, telling her side of the story. And after the meeting with Dave, that's when negotiations started with both Alex and I to get a deal done. This is where the story gets extremely fucked up. I found out that Alex had gone behind my back and done something. And I found out it wasn't the first time. And that's why we're here. I trusted Alex. I feel betrayed. But ultimately, she was my best friend. And that doesn't change overnight. And I'm willing to do call her daddy. I really am. I just can't do it under the circumstances that she wants. I can't do it while she's demanding that she controls the show. I don't want to be like her employee. We are partners. We've always been that way. We've always been 50-50. And so it's putting me in like a an extremely tough position. According to Lorenz, this is not exactly going to be like Jay Leno and David Letterman. They may both wind up with pods on Barstool. <laughs> so instead of one big show, you now have two big shows mm-hmm. on the same network. I have a feeling Barcelona is going to come out just fine in this whole thing. David, let's do some listener mail. We do this every Thursday. Uh, first question from Matt Williams. <laughs> Did David sack the masked man show because we're all masked men now? I know that is not actually true, <laughs> but I did like the idea that you had given up the mass man program because you saw that literally everyone had taken your bit out on the street. During That's fantastic. The mass man show, the, the, the answer, I'm glad you asked because the mass man show is back. We have a new episode up as you're listening to this, assuming our, our heel producer, Jim uh, has his act together. And uh, I apologize for my distance. It is, you know, it, this is. In some strange way, the Masked Man show is like this whole, I mean, there's a little symptom or microcosm of everything we've been going through. I really pushed pause on it because I was like, I don't want to talk about wrestlers wrestling in an audience-free arena every week for the next month without really thinking that it was going to be months and months and months. <laughs> and, and so, um, and, you know, and, and I just, you know, had to figure out exactly how I want to talk about it. So we're back. We're, we're back with, with a vengeance. And, uh. And just the fact that everybody's wearing masks, you know, it makes me happy. I feel like everybody's part of the whatever the mask man equivalent of the daddy gang is. So, <laughs> This is from Michael F. David and Brian, what's your power ranking of new streaming services that you definitely won't have time for while in family quarantine? Ooh, um, wait, the ones that I'm not watching now. Yeah, you definitely won't have time for man. Listen. I hate to say it, the WWE Network has taken a huge hit <laughs> in the quarantine era. Um, it's a lot harder just to be like, hey, family, gather around. I have some top rope high spots I want to show you. But I don't know. I don't. I mean, it's. It, I feel like everything is taking a hit now. News is taking a big hit. Uh, 
I mean, honestly, it's just like the entire world is a negotiation between the baby watching the Disney app and the 11 year old playing, you know, Call of Duty or whatever on the TV. So it's it, it there's everything's taking a hit. Amen. This is from Megan. Hypothetically, David and Brian become Bezos rich, like Bezos level rich. If you could buy one media outlet to run, which would it be and why? Now, that's an interesting question. God, that became a lot more interesting with the horrible news out of the Atlantic today, where it turns out being Bezos rich or at least Lorene Powell Jobs rich doesn't guarantee that your magazine, website, media company isn't going to have a ton of layoffs. Despite the fact that the Atlantic has been kicking ass during the pandemic, I think is universally agreed. Um, boy, that's sobering. Yeah, it is. I mean, they've been so I mean, and I think as coworker Tyler Tynes pointed out, they're they're doing really well right now, but they're still losing money and events and ad sales are obviously going way down. And there's there's you know, they're, they they say uh, the Atlantic says they're making themselves, you know, more streamlined for for the future. I know, Brian, I mean, this is far afield from the question, I'm sure, but you've pointed out before when talking about sports media that maybe some of the downsizing we're seeing now is as 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 catastrophic and immediate as it seems is sort of like charting the the course for the future in a really sad way. But this is uh, it's really it's really painful, particularly to see the Atlantic do it after as well as they've been doing for the past couple of months. Yeah, I feel the answer to the uh, to the original question, by the way, posed by Megan is at least in our lane, there is an absolute hero white knight of sports illustrated out there somewhere mm -hmm. even now <laughs> right like i cannot tell you the goodwill that would accrue to a rich person who came and said you know what i'm just gonna deal let me go get sports illustrated and yeah. just and just try at this point if maybe there's nothing left maybe it's been taken to such a bad place but that that is like the easiest way to being you know Time Magazine's Man of the Year, uh, <laughs> at least in our world. What, don't do you do you have, is there any part of you that like would just love to take your hypothetical billions of dollars and just reboot a dead paper? Like not even not not like Sports yes. Illustrated dead, but like I'm gonna bring back the New York Herald Tribune, or I'm gonna bring back like the what, what what's the what's the no longer with the no longer in existence dallas paper like the news uh, dispatch yeah, the or times whatever herald. yeah the times herald dallas times herald and just run it like a pirate ship like a lovely literary like news gathering pirate ship for into the future i mean that would just be so much fun that is my exact fantasy in fact no joke and and that would be it would be you you really would have to have the bezos money to just endure the newspaper yeah. business at this point but that would be so fun and it could be the fort worth star telegram be anything uh, mm -hmm. and just pump it up. This is from Jay Malone. Was it odd that the last dance didn't even mention Michael Jordan's run with the wizards? I'm 25. So that's literally all I remember of MJ and would have loved to know his thoughts on how all that went down. Also, what was the media consensus at the time? Re his play. Um, do you want to start with the end first? Yeah. Do we think MJ would have been honest about the wizards stuff? Uh, whew, that's interesting. Honestly, like a lot, there are some, uh, kind of political inter NBA political issues that are actually, they're even touchier than the stuff they dealt with in the last dance when it comes to wizards ownership and what Jordan says he was promised and everything else. I mean, I think that the practical reason is that they, this was supposed to be, I think initially conceived as just a documentary about that last season. And it sort of grew and grew and grew. Uh, and it made a lot more sense to grow it in, you know, backwards than to than to grow forward. Sure. Um, I don't. Uh, it was it was interesting, um, but I think you know if you conceptualize it like you did last time of, as Jordan's memoir, um, whether or not he would have been honest about questions from the Wizards, I'm sure he would rather his story have ended at the end of '98, the '98, '97, '98 season, right? I mean, that's for him where the important part of his legacy, that story ends. Yeah, it's like Tiger did a memoir a couple years back where he just talked about a very specific part of his career instead of having to do the life of Tiger, which would have taken yeah. us into some bad places. To your point, I'm sorry, I cut you off a second ago about media consensus, uh, re Michael Jordan, the Wizards. I feel that's now had an uptick, right? That was one of the things that actually got reevaluated during the mm -hmm. last dance content bonanza where people was like, you know, actually he was, pretty good as a wizard even yeah. if we were all kind of disappointed at the time and there was a Kwame Brown stuff anyway there is a book about that 
<laughs> right? yeah. the Washington Post guy right at the time, but uh, probably not going to be a standalone ESPN documentary. This is from BPM Twitter. Are we looking at a future where ESPN is sending live hits to Woj, quote, live within the NBA's campus environment? What would the best media members to serve as insider men and chronicle life inside the bubble? I think we we talked about a version of this before, but I wanted to bring it up again because this is absolutely going to be how we determine the status of insiders in all these different sports. Are you bubble worthy? Do you have bubble status? Ooh. Because media is going to be very limited. We've seen there was a NASCAR race, and I think there are four reporters were in the press box in NASCAR last weekend. So they're only going to let some people in. If you work for a rights holder, that is probably an advantage to you. But the old sort of sign of, you know, status among insiders was, do the players let me sidle with them, right? Are the players granting me a private interview? I think bubble status, bubble worthiness is the next true status symbol among sports writers. It's going to be huge. That is definitely true. Um, but I also think that, that you know, something that has been a little bit under-discussed is that if we do go to a bubble, if the NBA or any other sport does move to a literal bubble situation, right, or some sort of, like, uh, league-wide... <laughs> I don't know. Um, literal bubble is the right word here, by the well, way. Not are we, a literal are we actually bubble, in like a giant blowing a bubble that that would be really cool if they did. You're right. Not exactly. <laughs> they're not all like living inside the Epcot dome. But um, but if they <laughs> but but if they are effectively quarantined to league hotels and playing at the same places and everything else, talking about insider, you know, insider news. The biggest news coming out of this place is not going to be what happens on the court. It's going to be what happens at the hotel bar after the games, right? So, like, people are, and people are going to be much more interested in that. And, like, I mean, did players get into arguments or players you wouldn't expect to be, you know, they're playing each other tonight or tomorrow night, un, un, you know, surprisingly chummy the night before, like, whatever. Playing be cards if this is in Vegas? Exactly where I was going. If it's in, and, and so, as much as we sort of joked during the last dance about the sort of, you know, a Rashad element. And, and, you know, I talked about Magic Johnson saying he was playing cards with Michael Jordan every night before he went and did the color for the, for the games the next night. You're going to want a Rashad, right? A Rashad at the Disney or Las Vegas dome is going to be like the, mo like the, 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 the best insider you could possibly have, even if he can't be totally honest. And even if he's, you know, skewing the evidence, skewing the, the, the reportage in, in, in favor of, you know, whoever his best friends are, I would much rather hear, or not rather, but I definitely want to hear from somebody who was like at the card table the night before, right? I mean, isn't that isn't that like the most captivating part of the whole thing? Absolutely. Oh my god, I can't, I can't wait for this. I honestly, this is just what, this is your your guy Kendrick Perkins would be perfect for this. Put just put somebody, <laughs> put the ex player in there. You know, just give Charles Oakley like a million dollars to be just like to be a back to, to be a you know on the scene reporter and uh, and just you know see where it goes. I'll be excited to have basketball back, but I'll be really excited to have questing media members back. One more note, Richard Marshall <laughs> has an overworked headline issue. Why are there so many curious cases? Outlets love this trope, and the ringer is a habitual offender. Here's some, <laughs> here's some, uh, the curious case of Brian Colangelo and the secret Twitter account, the curious case of Molly's game and Netflix, of Elon Musk and his Twitter account, of Paul Pierce in the wheelchair. And I believe we did the curious case of Ahmad Rashad, at least on Twitter, uh, a couple <laughs> weeks ago. Curious case of headline writers. We, we, we're all done, right? I remember at Granlin, it was the ballad of, I think we did yeah, like half a dozen times, the ballad of blank. The curious well, case. First of all, now that it's been pointed out, this will be a uh, message, a staff-wide message in like, you know, copy editing Slack later today, and we will never see it again. Um but yeah, I think it actually is very similar to the ballad of. It's a sort of like a, it's a slightly more literary tinged way to say what another to do what another you know another website or a blog would where they would do that's weird colon and then this you know the same second half you know <laughs> or like what's up with uh, Elon Musk and his Twitter account you know I mean it's it's just a way of framing it as a slightly more thoughtful piece uh, but it is you know th those are a lot th those are <laughs> that is a lot of examples. Speaking of strain headlines, it is time for yeah. David Shoemaker guesses the strain pun headline. 
Monday's headline about Australian politician Dan Andrews reopening the economy was one small step for Dan. Today's headline comes from Victor Flores. It's from Eater. The story is about the cancellation of celebrity food person Allison Roman, David. Roman, you'll remember, gave an interview in which she blasted Marie Kondo and Chrissy Teigen. Mm -hmm. There was an uproar. Uh, The New York Times has put her column on pause. Eater notes, there was a whiff of inevitability to the suddenness and vociferousness of the anger directed at Roman, who had become ubiquitous thanks in part to her knack for proselytizing ostensibly ethnic ingredients like tahini, turmeric, and yuzu kosho to a broader American audience. Roman's critics charge she was not only a hypocrite but a racist, one who had moreover very successfully capitalized on the ingredients of other cultures. Okay, the key word here, David, is awakening. Awakening. Alison Roman had a particular kind of awakening. What was Eater's strained pun headline? Oh, my God. Uh, um, I feel like this should be obvious. I'm totally blanking here. Um, now the normal kind of awakening would be a rude awakening. Right. This would be a, not food, it- too easy. Oh, well, it's too easy. Oh, this is a strain pun headline here. Come on, man. Uh, r- uh, root, um, uh, root, uh, r- uh, um, something you might make on a cold winter's night would be a, br- um, uh, I'm stirring uh, the pot here. I know. I'm making a, <laughs> I know. And not, uh, um, not a soup, but a stew, uh, stew, okay. stewed awakening, awa- stewed awakening. Oh my God. Stude awakening. That's terrible. Almost in a little Richard territory there. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Research by Chris nice. Almeida. Production magic by Erica Cervantes. We've got some log rolling here. You're going to want to listen to Alyssa Bereznak's new pod, Boom Bust, about the rise and fall of HQ trivia, which is awesome. Check that out when you have a chance. We're back Monday. Our interview is with the Daily Beast, Will Summer, who's on the right wing media QAnon beat. That should be awesome. I joked on Twitter, David, that our Joe Biden digital divide segment uh, is becoming to the press box what Matt Damon is becoming to Jimmy Kimmel or has become to Jimmy Kimmel. We're out of time. Uh, So next week, Joe Biden's digital divide, probably. Plus more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian.